Hi everyone, I'm Warren Schulberg, and welcome to Retail Watch. It's a podcast where I talk to the people who are shaping the world of home furnishings retailing. We're going to get started right away, but you know how these things go. First, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor. Square is here to make your work life better. With Square, you don't have to spend time mailing out invoices or depositing checks. You can access your funds instantly. Send custom estimates. Get paid 24-7 from anywhere. Make better business decisions with real-time reporting and manage clients all in one system. Square takes care of business so you can take care of your clients. Learn more at square.com slash go slash professionals. All right, let's get started with our show. His official name is W.W. Epperson Jr., but to just about everybody in the furniture business, he is simply Jerry. As managing director for the Richmond, Virginia-based investment banking organization, Mann, Armistead, and Epperson, it is only fitting that Jerry's name is last, because indeed, he is the last word in the furniture industry. For more than 30 years, he's been the go-to guy whenever companies in the field were looking to buy, sell, expand, contract, or otherwise change their business model. He's got a disarming, aw shucks kind of demeanor, but don't let that fool you. Jerry is razor sharp. He's smarter than the average bear, and he knows more stuff about the furniture industry than any one person should be allowed. And he's never let a childhood illness, and we'll talk about that later, stop him from getting to wherever he needs to go. Jerry's a friend, and I'm honored to have him here as our guest today. Thanks, Jerry, and welcome. I'm honored to be asked. So we're going to cut to the chase right immediately, and we're going to start with the big question that everybody in the industry is asking. Uh, The furniture and the entire home furnishings industry has been experiencing spectacular times. And yet everyone is terrified that it's all going to come suddenly crashing down next Tuesday. Do you think that or do you believe the American consumer maybe has come to a higher appreciation for their homes and that business is going to continue to be good for the industry? What do you think, Jerry? Warren, you look at all the different inputs that are involved there. And one, we've got more people in the 35 to 54 age groups, which are the primary buying groups for furniture and home furnishings. And that group is going to grow every year from now till the year 3034. So I don't know what's going to happen in 3035, but we've got more people (laughs) buying in that time. They need homes. They need places to stay. There's a shortage of those. There'll continue to be strong housing activity. Although we are looking at higher interest rates, which will have an impact. The concern I have is anticipation of the new tax rules, which are causing some concern. And, of course, the Delta variant, which may slow people from going into stores. So those are those are concerns. But the core demand is looking very, very good. Remember, more people are not just working from home, but they're shopping from home. They're going to church from home. They're... Uh, seeing their doctor from home. I mean, this is a phenomenon that a lot of people realized when they were made to go home that they can do pretty well at home now, and the home has higher value than it once did. 
So obviously people aren't going to buy a couch every uh, every 12 months, but you think uh, the hardcore furniture business still has a lot of upside potential with those demographic trends. Yes, we've got some catch-up from the orders that we've got that haven't been filled. So that's going to carry us well into uh, 2022. Right now, our problem is that the ports are not improving. I just saw where Los Angeles and Long Long Beach are going to 24-hour-a-day hours, uh, and we're seeing where a couple of ports in Asia are getting a little bit better, and then one of them had a, a big protest yesterday. But things along that line are getting better. And the real key here is we're right now at the peak of the incoming Christmas season mass that comes through, and that's going to get better and better. Once October 1st passes, the Christmas, big Christmas season is passed, and we don't worry with competing with those containers coming in. So this supply chain mess, which everybody knows about it, and you talk to the man on the street, and he says, yeah, supply chain mess, and what's the long-term effect on the industry of this? Is this, uh, is this going to change the way these companies do business? Uh, I got a sheet of paper uh, day before yesterday, which was quotes for containers coming in from different Asian ports, the least expensive one in there was $25,900. These prices are not getting better anytime soon, but that's pure greed. And I think these prices will be coming back down after the first of next year. Now, again, we've got the Chinese New Year that's going to disrupt things all over again. So I think what we're looking at is probably the spring of next year we begin to see the supply lines normalize. What a lot of us don't think about is the chaos that this causes within retail stores. Uh, One of my friends called me over the weekend, and he's used to programming his stores, having the same mix in all of his 50-some stores, and they they can run things, coordinate packages, uh, they're advertising everything. Right now, he says every one of his stores looks completely different than every every other one of his stores, because while his vendors will send him something, he didn't want to order. They're just <laughs> glad to send him something. So he's got this mess that's hurting the salespeople's ability to sell. It's hurting their ability to really advertise and promote what they'd like to be selling. Now, sales are still good. August was just great. You you can't complain about the demand yet, but he feels like every day that passes, he's missing sales that he should be making. And you said that the the vendor's shipping him whatever he's got, and is he happy to accept whatever whatever shows up on his loading dock? It's it's better than having holes on your floor. I, I remember being, as I was taught, not to put the same sofa on the floor three times. Well... That's happening sometimes. <laughs> they're, they're putting it in different spots and hoping you don't pay attention. Do you see a, a, a fundamental shift in where companies are manufacturing? Uh, you know, people talk about North America and Central America and even South America. Is that realistic? We, we, we don't get a lot of goods from, from those areas right now. We're not going to see a lot of wood furniture manufacturing come back to the U.S., I'm sorry to say. We have put in place such strict regulations on OSHA and EPA and all these different things that it's become price prohibitive for most people to be able to manufacture 
wood furniture in the U.S. It's been that way for a long time with metal furniture. That's almost impossible to get the permits. So I don't think that's coming back. Uh, upholstery, yes. And it's coming back in a couple of forms. Some of the upholsters are bringing in the rolls of fabric and doing the whole thing. They're, they're cutting and sewing their own, their own upholstery. They're making their own frames. They're doing the whole thing. And that's primarily in, in Mississippi and North Carolina. And we're seeing where that business has come back pretty strong. People bringing in kits is still strong, where they just bring in the cut and sewn covers. That's, that's going to continue strong. But remember, about 70% of our covers, uh, both leather and fabric, are coming out of Asia. So we've got to have Asia in order for our upholstery business to prosper. I think we'll continue to get our wood furniture from overseas. And I think Mexico is very much in the catbird seat. They've got a number of things going for them including the way they get product into the U.S. We've got uh, friends of ours who have a plant just outside the Yucatan, and they're sending product into western Florida at a very reasonable rate, and they can bring things in and, and not fight the hassles that some other people are. So Mexico is an option? Absolutely. Okay. Lazy Boy's had a plant there for a while. Ethan Allen's had a had the plant there for even longer and uh, FlexSteel now has either three or four plants. Is the skilled labor force still available here in the U.S. to make these kind of products? It's got to be somewhere. We just can't find them. <laughs> uh, They're out there somewhere, huh? Are they, are they gaming? Are they vaping? I don't know. But they just don't seem to come back. Retail can't get people to drive their trucks and unload the trucks to work in the warehouse, and in many cases, work selling the furniture up front. The manufacturers can't get people to work on the line. They put in significant uh, uh, pay increases. It doesn't seem to make any difference. I think everybody's listening to podcasts, right? Isn't that what's going on? Absolutely, especially when you're on. <laughs> One last thing on sourcing. We, we saw this migration out of China into Vietnam, uh, into some other areas of Southeast Asia. It seems to be a natural progression. Where Where's the next Asia area, uh, and is that a permanent change? Well, I've got some people who are betting on India, Okay, and they think India has a lot of opportunity and even some raw materials that will help. But again, there, it just seems to sort of jump over the borders one, one level. Thailand is still going to be active and still going to be growing. Malaysia's had a much more important impact in the last couple of years. And those laborers uh, seem to be able to learn quickly and enjoy this kind of work. I remember when Paul Maitland Smith uh, went into uh, Vietnam in, in, I guess that was the late uh, 90s, and opened up a factory before they had favored nation status. So the cost of bringing his product into the U.S. was huge. He had to front that in order to build the business. So when they got favored nation status, he could really go to town. Without, that was with Theodore Alexander. But you know, Vietnam is, is ideally suited primarily because this is the kind of product 
they're skilled people want to make, and they're really good at it. And I think some people lose sight of the fact that everybody talks about Vietnam, but it's it's what one fiftieth the size of China in terms of the labor force, and and it doesn't have the raw material uh, base that China has. So it's it's not the uh, be all and end all solution for furniture, right? No, but the fact is that they made more furniture last year in some categories in Vietnam than they did in China. Really? Primarily because of the Chinese are having that uh, 25% tariff installed. And the American consumer doesn't really notice or even care, right? I don't see where the American consumer cares at all. Okay. When we moved into our condo where I'm sitting now, I'm Richmond, Old South, Darkwood, Richmond. <laughs> Uh, Williamsburg's 45 miles away, so you know we we have to reflect that in every home. I went shopping in a favorite store of mine, and they had a Hinkle Harris uh, high boy that I wanted. How more appropriate than to have a high boy made in Warrington, Virginia, made by people I know. I knew the 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 Hinkles. It would be just great. And I looked at that thing; it was beautiful. And by George, it was on sale. Find that hard to believe, I know, but it was on sale. For $9,999, it regularly sold for 18 something. Mm. And I sat there and thought, how bad would my wife kill me if I bought this and took it back? <laughs> I continued my path just, just wandering through the store, and there was another high boy, beautiful high boy, lots of detail, a very similar size, and it was made by Theodore Alexander. And it was on sale today only for $27.99. Uh. It, it was beautiful. So here I am trying to be a good American, but do I want one Hinkle Harris high boy or do I want three Theodore Alexander high boys made in Vietnam? The difference is so extreme. Square has an entire suite of tools that make it easy to stay organized and get paid more quickly. In fact, over 75% of Square invoices get paid in a single day, which really helps with cash flow. Get paid online, in person, over the phone, and it's all synced into one account. You can manage your clients' appointments and see real-time reporting from anywhere. Square takes care of business, so you can take care of your clients. You can learn more at square.com slash go slash professionals. And okay, let's get back to the show now. On the vendor side of the industry... You know, again, unlike some other industries, I don't know, major appliances, let's say, which is also a big ticket home furnishings item, it's really consolidated down to a couple of a couple of big suppliers. Uh, in my mind, the furniture vendor side is still pretty fragmented, and for a long time, companies that tried to uh, roll up through acquisitions or internal growth failed miserably. Outsiders have come in this business and have failed miserably. Finally, we're seeing companies like Ashley and Lazy Boy that are really getting some substantial size, but it's still kind of fragmented. Again, how come furniture is structured that way? And what changed to make, again, guys like Ashley and Lazy Boy finally get over the hump and get really big? A lot of it has to do with media and the way we can reach people today that we couldn't. Uh, Ashley has been a true phenomenon. Uh, it has outgrown the industry in every possible way. And in many ways, they have thought ahead. Uh, before they started opening their uh, licensed uh, home stores, 
they built in the logistics to service those stores. So they're not playing catch up. Uh, they still have the best logistics in the furniture industry. And some dealers tell me they don't like dealing with them, but daggone it, they can get it to you faster than anyone else. And turnover of your inventory is still a real key. So get, Ashley deserves every every praise it can get. About one-fourth Ashley size is Lazy Boy, and they're doing a fantastic job. Uh, they have a brand name that is just extraordinary and well-respected. And truthfully, they make a fine product. I had an experience here not long ago with a friend of mine who uh, had a Lazy Boy chair, and it had a problem. And I introduced him to a local guy here in Richmond that does repairs for Lazy Boy and Leggett and Platt and others. And he said, well, you're fortunate you have a, a Lazy Boy because Lazy Boy still has all the parts for every mo moving chair that they've ever made. Wow. And so you call, I can call them right now, tell them the number off of this, and they'll Federal Express the part to me. No one else does that. So, you know, that's a competitive edge if you've ever owned the product. Now, if you look back 20 years, you know, the companies that were big and dominant aren't the ones that are named first anymore, and some barely exist. I, I can't believe we're, we're in a world where we don't see Henry Don every day and we don't see Drexel Heritage every day. Again, it's it's a shame because those were companies that had great product and they died not because of their product, but because of management. And again, we've seen outsiders who have also failed miserably. Do you Most think of them were educated at Harvard. <laughs> Spoken like a true William and Mary graduate. Okay, so uh, um, part of why Ashley and, and, and Lazy Boy have been successful, I think, is is their vertical model that they are they are uh, uh, they've got retail uh, operations either licensed or franchised or company owned. That model uh, seems to be gaining market share. Is that kind of the future of the furniture business in terms of retailing? I don't think so, simply because there are so few uh, vendors, that is source companies that we use, that have consumer recognizable brand names. I mean, Ashley has built its name up over the last 20 years since they've been having their stores. The first one's opened in the mid-90s. If you look at Lazy Boy, of course, their uh, introduction of the first uh, recliner rocker, I believe, was 1961. And so they've had a lot of years of building that brand name up, and everybody knows what Lazy Boy is. The other brand names are, are still around, but they're in a lot different forms than we used to know them. Lane is, is different than what it used to be. Broyhill is completely different than the Broyhill we grew up with. So we're seeing those kind of changes. But what is happening is the stores are creating exclusive merchandise for themselves. So we're seeing that at Haverty, we're seeing that at, at Value City, we're seeing that at Amazon, where they're creating designs that aren't available anywhere else. And that way they can begin to develop a program with their own loyalty to their store. So the independent furniture dealer is not doomed per se, right? I mean, smart ones can can uh, maneuver and be successful. Well, Warren, the, the way I look at it, and, and if I may speak of high point here, High Point's got somewhere around 2,500 showrooms. There are 400 to 450 of the vendors, 
that sell only containers. Okay. So then you've got somewhere less than 600 retailers who can only buy in containers. So now we've still got almost 2,000 showrooms in High Point that are set up to do business with stores that aren't container-owned. And so I think part of the problem is getting more and more stores to recognize don't buy what Ashley's buying. Don't buy what Rooms to Go is buying. You're not going to be able to outcompete them in terms of delivery, in terms of price, in terms of essentially anything. Buy things that they don't buy. Yeah. That's where the real opportunity is. You can go down there and find unique merchandise and things that will distinguish your store from the big boys. I hear a lot of complaints from the consumers I visit with. And yes, I visit with consumers. <laughs> they tell me that, that the big stores tend to look alike. They'll have a lot of the same styles, a lot of the same prices, a lot of the same credit programs even. And I think if you go through, you will see that. If you look at a value city and a rooms to go in an Ashley home store, you'll find a dozen items that are essentially identical un unless you look at the finest details. That's because they're popular. Mm -hmm. Remember the biggest stores, the biggest stores have to appeal to the broadest consumer mix, whereas individual stores can narrow their appeal down to certain universes of people and serve them really, really well. And be able to sell $11,000 high boys. Uh, so that's, uh, <laughs> so yes. that's good. Uh, unmarried men. Yes. <laughs> so you mentioned high point and, you know, folks who know you, um, you are a familiar site in, in high point and, uh, scooting around on your electric scooter. And, uh, it's, you know, you cut a dashing figure. There's no question about it. Um, but I think a lot of people may not know exactly why you are uh, scooter bound. So um, you've talked about this. I think you wrote a, you even wrote a book about it. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, that kind of backstory for a minute. I've actually looked at being fat, bald, and on a blue scooter as a an identity <laughs> that I can hang. <laughs> And if I see someone else fat ball on a blue scooter, I'll stop him at the market and tell him, okay, you're violating a big law here. Um, You've got a trademark on that, I think, yeah. Hey, I'm going to market, if I'm talking to someone who doesn't know me, I'll say, okay, I don't know you, but all you got to do is look for a fat ball crippled guy on the scooter, and that's me. Uh, I had polio when I was two. There was an epidemic of polio in 1949, 50 through 52. Uh, in Western Virginia, and I happened to catch it. Uh, my small town of 1,500 people and one stoplight. They still complain about the rush minute, by the way. But they, the, the people in Victoria, great people, we didn't have a doctor. So my mother had to drive me to Farmville, about 40 miles away, to go to a clinic because I had an ear infection. And they, my we received a letter weeks later that there was another child there that day who had been proven to have polio, and therefore I could have had contact and I could have it. And sure, sure enough, within weeks, evidently, I started falling down, and so they took me to Richmond and quarantined me in the polio ward at the Medical College of Virginia, and that's where it started. Um, I've never owned a pair of tennis shoes. Uh, I've, I've never run anywhere. I've never owned a bicycle. Um there are a lot of things I just haven't done or don't even try. I know I can't do it. 
But I've been able to accomplish pretty much everything I wanted. My parents rightly taught me the value of an education that I couldn't work on the railroad like my father or in the tobacco fields or in the textile factories or heaven help us in the furniture factories. I needed to get an education. And the state of Virginia helped me with that, with some deals. And I got to go to any state college I wanted to uh, without tuition and because of my handicap. And so I got to go to the University of Virginia and get a degree there and then went from there to William Berry and got a degree there. And uh, my wife and I moved to Richmond. We've been here ever since. Again, doing great work. Victoria is a furniture town. I got to know some people there. My father knew a lot of people. He introduced me to some people. The people in the, the furniture industry have, were very welcoming to me in the 70s when I went around to meet them. I think it was because I had an interest in, in their companies and them as much as I had in their stock price. And that helped me. The other thing was that uh, I didn't see living in a small town as a negative. I grew up in a town smaller than most of these small towns that these factories are in. So that all worked. And I got to know the families. These are, these are wonderful people when you get right down to it. And so are real characters. I, I can imagine. And that's, that's a subject for a, uh, a non-PG podcast uh, next time. So, have you ever had a gun pulled on you in a showroom? I have not. I suspect you have, huh? Yes. Uh, guy invited me into his office, sat down, and leaned forward and pulled a gun out of a holster. Not not a little itty-bitty thing. I'm talking yeah. about the barrel was that long. And he laid it on the desk. He says, I guess I won't need this with you. <laughs> Um, and was your plan to be in, in furniture finance, or did you have something else? All of us have to look while we're getting our education if anything attracts you. I was not getting good grades at the University of Virginia. You might find that hard to believe. But uh, <clears throat> I was not getting good grades, and I took economics. And when I, got, when I took my economics, I didn't understand why other people were having a problem. It was the easiest thing in the world to me. I got A's. I was tutoring other people, which, believe me, I was the least likely to be a tutor. And then accounting, same thing. It just seemed so easy to me. And my father said, God's telling you something, that that is a talent you have that you need to use. So I started taking more and more business classes, which got me better grades. I made dean's list, which, let me just say, the odds were against me there for a long time. <laughs> and I got out and went to graduate school at William & Mary. Again, when I got out, I had what was then the all-important MBA, and that gave me an opportunity to go into the investment business. And just as time would have it, in 1971 and 1972, we were in a housing boom. Today, we're just barely making a million, building a million new homes a year. Back then, we were building 2.1 million homes one year and 2.4 million homes the next year. Wow. Uh, because of all of we baby boomers born from 1946 to 1964. Again, the, the generation prior to us was right at 50 million, and our generation was 77. So that really woke everybody up. We didn't have enough schools. We didn't make enough this. We didn't have enough shopping areas. That was all brought on by the baby boomers. And so the furniture industry was one of the first to get that recognition because they needed residences of some sort. And we needed a lot of homes built. We had an apartments built. 
and it was just explosive growth. There in the very early 70s, furniture stocks were the tech stocks of the time. Okay. Uh, Levitt's was the leader. It was the hottest yeah. stock out there, selling wow. at 120 times earnings. Mm. And a lot of companies grew just because people misunderstood and thought they were selling to Levitt's, you know, their brand. Henrodon got a big call out from a brokerage house I won't mention because supposedly they sold Levitt's. Henrodon never sold Levitt's. <laughs> Not the Levitt's I knew, that's for sure. Not yeah. the Henrodon we knew either. Yeah. <laughs> Warren, I want to just make one kind of grandiose comment. Sure. The, the one thing I have learned over my 50 years now of studying the furniture industry is that we have very low self-esteem. Our industry often feels like the consumer's doing us a favor by coming in our store or for buying our product. And I'm not sure I understand why that is. Our prices, furniture prices are extraordinarily cheap relative to almost any other product you can name. In 1970, you could buy a Volkswagen Beetle for $1,800. And you could buy our best-selling sofa was three hundred and ninety-nine dollars. Uh, today, I don't know what the least expensive Volkswagen is, but I think it's seventeen or eighteen thousand dollars at least. And uh, we can still buy a comparable sofa for six ninety-nine. I'm I'm disturbed that we don't have better confidence. We make a better product, uh, and I think the consumers finally are coming to us because the home of today, thanks to technology, the home of today. It, they can do more. You know, like I said, they're working more. They're shopping more. They're going to church more. They're seeing their doctor all from their home. And it allows them to be more productive from their home. So I think the home is rising, rising in importance. And that's one of the things that even now with good business, as good as business has been, all of us are sitting around saying, oh, it's not going to last. We're the furniture industry. It's not going to last. We're going to fall off a cliff. That's not necessarily true. I think we're going to have, uh, we won't have the fast growth like we had in 2020, but I think we're going to have steady growth because there's a demand for our product, and there's a lot of our product out there that needs to be replaced. Well, I think uh, ending on a high note like that is uh, most appropriate. Uh, Jerry, thanks so much. Uh, appreciate it, and uh, stay well, and we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you out there somewhere. Thanks. Warren, thanks for being a good friend. Likewise. Well, that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover the show. And if you have a question or some feedback or complaints, shoot me a note. It's retailwatch at businessofhome.com. And if you're interested in keeping up with the home industry in general, make sure to check out businessofhome.com. You'll find free newsletters, job postings, and more great podcasts. Retail Watch is produced by me, Warren Schulberg, and Fred Nikolaus. This episode was edited by Fred Nikolaus. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see or hear you in two weeks. Bye.